William Mann is an associate professor of history at Connecticut State University and is the author of uh, Hello, Gorgeous, Becoming Barbara Streisand. You may hear a little bit about that today. The story of, of Barbara Streisand's first five years in show business. He's also the author of Kate, the Woman Who Was Hepburn, called Definitive by the Times of London and named as a notable book of 2006 by the New York Times, as well as several other acclaimed studies of the film industry. These include How to Become a Movie Star, Elizabeth Taylor in Hollywood, and Edge of Midnight, The Life of John Schlesinger. Um, William won the Lambda Literary Award for Wisecracker, The Life and Times of William Haynes, which has been optioned as both a feature film and a Broadway musical. So with that, welcome to CSP Cultural Event with William Mann on Tinseltown. Thank you. I'll leave this here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ari. This is great because we've been trying to uh, coordinate this for the past couple of years. We tried to get out here when my Streisand book came out. Um, that didn't work. We always seemed to have something, uh, scheduling that was a problem. So Ari has asked me at the finish of this if I'll say a few words about Barbara, and I'm very happy to do that. So afterwards, if we want to talk about Tinseltown or Barbara, feel free to um, whatever, you, um, whatever you'd like. Um, this, this, however, is my current book. And I thought what I would start is I have a little, little prepared talk that goes along with this presentation that I would give to you. Um, can you all hear me okay? Yeah? Okay. And you can see everything, everybody here? Okay. So, Tinseltown. It's the story of a murder, of a single soft-nosed bullet that traveled upward through the, a man's ribcage, piercing his lung and lodging in his neck. After being fired by an unknown assailant 92 years ago on an unseasonably cold Los Angeles night. This is also the story of three beautiful women, ambitious, talented, all of whom loved the victim and any of whom might have been his killer or the reason that he was killed. It is also the story of one very powerful man who saw the future of a very profitable industry at stake and made sure that the truth would remain obscured, diverted, and camouflaged for nearly a century. In many ways, this is also the story of the American Dream Factory, which was just being born in 1920, a time when the movies were still new and their power was still taking people by surprise. It is the story of the clash between old and new, between tradition and innovation, between those who would censor the movies and their facility to spread new ideas and those who were determined to bring about a new world of freedom, technology, power, and illusion. The murder in question took place on the night of February 1st, 1922. Until now, it has never been solved. It occurred here, in this upscale neighborhood, Alvarado Court, in the Westlake section of Los Angeles. The murder house is the third one from the left. The victim was this man, William Desmond Taylor, aged 49, a native, of, a native of County Carlow, Ireland, and the well-respected head of the Motion Picture Directors Association. Taylor was one of the top directors of famous players Lasky, the biggest film studio in Hollywood, which was very soon to become better known by the name of its distribution company, Paramount. 
Taylor's body was found on the morning of February 2nd by his valet, Henry Peavy, who would tell detectives that the door to Taylor's house was locked as he had left it the night before, and nothing seemed amiss in Taylor's neat, well-trimmed, well-appointed apartment. When Peavy discovered his employer's body, Taylor was lying face up on his back in front of his roll-top desk. He was fully dressed, not in any way disheveled, and his wallet, his wristwatch, and his jewelry were still on his body. Here is a detective's rendering of the crime scene that was published in Los Angeles newspapers. Taylor was a distinguished, discreet, proper sort of man. Sadly, he died a very difficult death. Shot in his side, with the bullet taking an unusual trajectory through his body, smashing through his rib cage and his lungs, and finally ending in his neck, Taylor essentially suffocated to death. The murder of such a respected figure was sure to bring headlines, especially because Taylor was not known for any high living. In fact, he was a rather enigmatic figure, keeping to himself most of the time with only a handful of close friends. Few in Hollywood knew much about his past. At first, before Taylor's body was found, before Taylor's body was turned over and the bullet was found, Henry Peavy and some of the neighbors who were called in thought perhaps the director had died of natural causes. There was a delay as the coroner was called to determine the cause of death, which gave this man, Charles Eiton, the general manager of Famous Players Lasky, the opportunity to do a thorough cleansing of Taylor's apartment. Eiton's goal was to get anything and everything that might prove embarrassing or inconvenient to the studio. Newspaper reporters were at that very moment clamoring outside the courtyard. Fearful of what those reporters might find, Eiton and several studio employees gathered up as many papers, letters, diaries, and date books that they could carry and carted them back to the studio. One of Eiton's accomplices was a young studio art director. George James Hopkins, who had been especially close to the victim. Famous players, or Paramount, as we shall call it from now on, since that is what it, it became just a few years later, was by far the most important and most successful movie studio in the world by 1922. Here's Paramount's top brass. Its Hollywood plant was run by Jesse Lasky on the far left. And its other big name director, besides Taylor, was Cecil B. DeMille on the far right. That's Samuel Goldwyn, one of the studio's founders, to DeMille's right, who would go on to form his own company, of course. But it's the man in the middle, Adolf Zucker, who was the real power at Paramount. Zucker had been a penniless orphan when he'd arrived in this country from Hungary, his pockets filled with nothing more than ambition. He had, almost single-handedly, turned the movies from a sideshow novelty into big business. By 1922, the once reviled flickers were the nation's fourth largest industry. Zucker had made Paramount, had made Paramount into not only a power in the United States, but around the world. Zucker had convinced Wall Street to invest heavily in the movies, 
So there were fortunes riding on whether the film industry thrived or failed, fortunes that included Zucker's own. No way was the imperious president of Paramount ever going back to having nothing. And so all of Zucker's lieutenants knew exactly what to do at the first sign of any scandal. Contain it, then obliterate it. That was why at the murder house in Alvarado Court, Charles Eiton, George Hopkins, and the other studio employees worked quickly to gather as much as they could before any cops or reporters could beat them to it. They couldn't get everything, however. Among the photographs Taylor kept in his house was this one, from Mary Miles Minter, a 19-year-old actress he directed in several pictures. She'd signed it, if you can read that, to William Desmond Taylor, artist, gentleman, man. If there was a hint at something a little more than just a professional relationship in that inscription, police also found a note from Mary that cinched it. Dearest, I love you, I love you, I love you, followed by all of those X's. Mary Miles Minter had started as a child actress, playing such sweet and innocent parts as Anne of Green Gables, but had quickly matured into a very sexy little seductress whose mother had to hire a security guard when stalkers began showing up at their house. For the detectives who searched through Taylor's belongings and began asking questions about him around town, it seemed little Mary might have been having an affair with the nearly 30-year-older director. The Taylor murder case was personally supervised by District Attorney Thomas Woolwine who hoped a successful prosecution might help him win the governor's mansion in a year's time. As his chief investigator, Woolwine tapped Los Angeles detective Ed King, one of the shrewdest and most accomplished detectives on the force. King was very intrigued by Mary Miles Minter's connection to the case, but he also lamented what he suspected had been taken from Taylor's apartment by the Paramount employees. The answer to who killed Taylor, King believed, lay in those papers. As Zucker feared, the Taylor case was a sensational news story, dominating front pages all across the country for weeks. Every theory, no matter how far-fetched, made it into big black letters, especially in the papers controlled by William Randolph Hearst. The scandal of Taylor's murder couldn't have come at a worse time for the film industry. Hollywood was still reeling from a series of earlier scandals. The beautiful Olive Thomas, a top star at the Selznick Studios, had died of an accidental poisoning while high on cocaine and other drugs. And just months before, one of Zucker's own stars, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, the nation's second most popular comedian after Charlie Chaplin, had been arrested for rape and murder. No matter that everyone in Hollywood knew that Arbuckle was innocent, two juries had deadlocked and he was now facing his third trial, keeping the scandal headlines coming day after day after day. There was also at this time a very powerful and growing movement to censor films, or worse, to institute federal regulation over the movies. 
fiery evangelical reformers like Brother Wil Wilbur Crafts were leading the charge to close the movie houses just as they had closed the saloons with prohibition. This was not just a case of moral outrage. It was an organized attack fueled by anti-Semitism. As Neil Gabler has pointed out in his landmark An Empire of Their Own, How the Jews Invented Hollywood, the vast majority of the film industry leaders were Jewish Im immigrants. Zucker, Lasky, Goldwyn, Carl Lemley, Marcus Lowe, Louis Selznick, and others. Brother Crafts, this guy here, said, the control of motion pictures is in the hands of 500 non-Christian Jews. Adolf Zucker quipped, I wasn't aware there was any other kind. <laughs> Henry Ford, the pioneer auto manufacturer and a notorious anti-Semite, blamed the scandals that were facing Hollywood solely on what he called an undermining of Christian values by a handful of leading Jews. So for Adolf Zucker, this was both professional and personal. Everything he'd worked so hard to build could come crashing down. As Zucker feared, the Taylor case was a, I'm, I'm sorry, that was because it, this was not just another murder. This, to the Taylor scandal, was made worse by all those who were caught in it. Not only was there the possibility that the director was carrying on with his much younger leading lady, but the last person to have seen him alive, other than his killer, of course, was the queen of comedy herself, the superstar Mabel Normand. Mabel's picture hung over the dead man's desk. Her photo was found in a locket he carried with him, with his keys and his pocket watch. And so a second popular actress was linked with Taylor in the aftermath of his death. Mabel hadn't done herself any favors by defending her friend and former co-star, Roscoe Arbuckle, who was a particular target of Brother Wilbur Crafts and the reformers. But there were other problems for Mabel as well. Most everyone in Hollywood knew that Mabel had recently kicked a cocaine habit, and reporters soon learned that it was Taylor himself who had paid for her rehab at the Glen Springs Sanitarium in Watkins Glen, New York. Mabel and Taylor had been the best of platonic friends, and she'd gone to see him on the night he was killed. As Detective King soon learned, Taylor was shot only minutes after Mabel left his home. Could Mabel be a suspect? Or perhaps might Taylor have been killed by his his for, her former drug contacts, angry that the director had helped Mabel kick the habit while ratting out a number of them in the process. Mabel's drug use was soon all over the press. The Taylor case had opened a hornet's nest of Hollywood secrets. A booklet called The Sins of Hollywood would soon appear, cataloging all the drug use and casual sex of the movie colony, with thinly veiled portraits of Mabel and her former boyfriend, producer Max Sennett. Of course, the sins of Hollywood also contained a heaping dose of anti-Semitism with the authors claiming that Hollywood was being ruined by the, by the Jewish leaders with a, who had a nefarious plot to take over the country. Mabel's career took a fatal hit from the Taylor scandal. 
Her box office clout would never be the same. Detective King investigated her thoroughly and proclaimed Mabel innocent of any wrongdoing. She was just an unfortunate young woman who, he said, who had lost her best friend. But that didn't stop the gossip mongers in the press from making insinuations about her. And who was to say that her drug connections hadn't off Taylor as revenge? Far more implicated in the murder, however, according to Detective King, was our little Mary. The more King investigated, the more he became suspicious, not of Mary herself, but of her ferocious mother, Charlotte Shelby, for whom Mary had become a very lucrative cash cow. Shelby was always at Mary's side, and Shelby, it turned out, had never approved of Mary's closeness with Taylor even though everyone insisted to King that the friendship between the director and his young star had been platonic, and that, in fact, Taylor had done his best to keep Mary at arm's length when her obsession with him became too intense. Shelby had nonetheless resented Taylor's influence on her daughter. Even in this poor quality newspaper photo, you can see the dagger shooting from Shelby's eyes at Taylor as he attempts to welcome Mary onto the set. Shelby loathed William, William Desmond Taylor. She even threatened to kill him at least once in front of witnesses. So, Detective King wondered, could Charlotte Shelby be the killer? Many of his colleagues seemed to think so. But there had been one witness that night, a neighbor, Faith McLean, here, seen here with her husband, the actor Douglas McLean. Faith had heard the fatal shot, and she had seen the killer leave Taylor's apartment from her front door. It was dark, so Faith couldn't give a very detailed description, but she was certain it was a man she saw, a rough-looking sort of person, she said, standing about 5'7 to 5'9. Suspicion then turned to this man. Edward Sands, who had been Taylor's valet until being fired about six months earlier. Sands had stolen from his employer and wrecked his car. Later, after getting the boot, he'd come back and stolen again, and this time some jewelry. Taylor had put out a warrant for his arrest. Might Sands be the killer? He stood about 5'7", and he had a motive. Police put out an all-points bulletin looking for Sands. Problem was, Faith McLean knew Sands, and she was certain that the man she saw wasn't him. But it was dark, after all. The scandal only deepened when Taylor, when Taylor was discovered to have lived a double life. His real name was William Dean Tanner, and he'd lived under several different aliases. Some years earlier, he'd abandoned his wife and daughter in New York. And one more. That's his daughter, Daisy, there, who ended up inheriting her father's estate. For months, the press spilled tons of ink speculating on motives for this mystery man's death. As the years went on, the list of suspects only grew. Mary Miles Minter, gangsters connected to Mabel Normand, Charlotte Shelby, Edward Sands, or someone from Taylor's murky past. But despite all the press coverage and Detective King's intense investigations, no arrest was ever made. 
Some years later, another suspect came to light when an old woman made a dying confession that she'd killed William Desmond Taylor. This was the former actress Margaret Gibson, known as Gibby. And, as it turned out, she had worked with Taylor before he'd become, an before he'd become a director, while he was still an actor. Gibby, as, as investigations would prove, had been arrested before. First for prostitution. The coverage was quite extensive. Here she is under the headline, Pretty Girl in a Peck of Trouble, and later for extortion and blackmail. Gibby was part of a gang of con artists operating out of Hollywood, a colorful group that included Rose Putnam and Don Osborne, shown here at the time of their arrest for blackmailing an, an Ohio millionaire, and Blackie Madsen, a swindler known for a dozen by a dozen different aliases. But if Gibby had the sort of background that might make her confession of the murder believable, she was dismissed by some as a suspect for the same reason they dismissed Charlotte Shelby. Faith McLean had seen a man, and that man had stood at least 5'7". Both Shelby and Gibby barely topped five feet. And after all, as Detective King pointed out, literally thousands of people would confess to the murder of William Desmond Taylor over the years. That's just the nature of these things. King would also argue, would it, was it possible that what Faith McLean had seen was a woman dressed in man's cl men's clothing and presumably wearing heels to make herself taller? This is what many began to believe about Charlotte Shelby, including Detective King. Shelby would face down a grand jury in 1937 that was called by a new district attorney, Buron Fitz. She adamantly defended her innocence. She said, either convict me now or let me go. Despite the very public investigation of her, no charges were ever filed against Charlotte Shelby. In 1938, the case of the murder of Desmond Taylor, William Desmond Taylor, was closed and was never opened again. In Tinseltown, I make the case for who I believe killed Taylor. I also set that story in the context of what else was happening in Hollywood at the time. The intense struggle led by Adolf Zukor to control the industry and to fend off outside regulation. If the movies had been regulated we would, we would have a very different film industry today. As part of Zukor's effort to forestall a federal crackdown, he brought in former Postmaster General Will Hayes to serve as the movie's czar, ostensibly to clean up the film industry, but really to keep the movies free from government intervention. Hayes proved to be surprisingly independent. Tinseltown, as I have said at the outset, is not just the story of the murder. It is also the story of the world in which that murder occurred and the very intense rivalries between people like Adolf Zukor and Will Hayes. It is the story of how the American film industry stayed free. Hayes and Zucker, however, I believe, for different reasons, to keep the movies free but also to keep the money coming in, would make sure that the killer of William Desmond Taylor 
was never brought to justice. That is the untold story that I tell in Tinseltown. So, who killed William Desmond Taylor? Was it Mary Miles Minter? Was it Charlotte Shelby? Were they drug gang gangsters? Were they, was it Margaret Gibby Gibson? Was it Edward Sands? Or was it someone else? <laughs> Adolf Zucker, I believe Adolf Zucker knew, but he took that secret with him to his grave. But you can find out for yourself in Tinseltown. Thank you. Thank you. That, that was the first time I gave that talk, so I'm, um, um, if I was a little hesitant there, that's because I, believe me, in the end of the next month, I will have that, I can say that without looking at the notes probably. Um, before, before we open to Q&A, uh, Ari asked me to also talk a little bit about my previous book, which is about Barbara Streisand. And um, in fact, Tinseltown um, is, is almost a direct, uh, it, it was a kind of a, um, a prize that was given to me because I originally didn't want to write about Barbara Streisand. And my editor at the time said, well, if you get to write about Barbara Streisand, you can write about anything you want next time. So that's, that's, this is our deal <laughs> that this book came out. Um, but I'm awfully glad that I did write about Barbara Streisand because I, in, the, in the beginning when he first said to me, I had done the book on he Catherine Hepburn and Elizabeth Taylor and um, he's, he was a huge Barbara Streisand, is a huge Barbara Streisand fan and he said, why don't you take on Streisand next? And I said, you know, I said, what are they going to put on my gravestone, you know, the chronicler of divas? You know, I mean, it's like, I said, and, and, he, and I said, you know, and it's just, you know, I like Barbara Streisand. I think she's got the most amazing voice in the world. But, you know, I'm not like, I'm not a huge Streisand fan like you are. I don't really get the, the passion that some people have. And he said, oh, he said, you'll get it, you'll get it. And he said, so he convinced me. But, but I said, you have, to, you have to let me figure out, I'm not doing a whole life of Barbara Streisand. I mean, I, didn't, I only did a small part of Elizabeth Taylor's life. I said, I need to find what part of the life interested me. And you know what it was? I don't know if, if, you've, if any of you have read the book. For me, what really still interests me about Streisand is the, is the story of how she came from absolutely nowhere and nothing to become so huge. To become, she came from literally, you know, dire poverty, no connections. She, and five years later, all she came, when she came from Brooklyn to Manhattan, she, all she had was ambition, kind of like I said about Adolf Zucker. And within five years, she was the biggest star in the world. You know, and, and it's, not, it's not like you know, she was the most beautiful woman in the world, but she had that voice, and, she had, and even more than the voice, and that's, that's what I argue in, in the book a lot, is it, the, the voice is amazing. And without that voice, she wouldn't have been able to succeed, but there are a lot of people with amazing voices who don't get there. What Streisand had, and what I try to show in Hello Gorgeous, is she had such a determination to make it. And that determination came from a couple of things. One, she, I think she wanted to tell all those, all those girls at Erasmus Hall High School who had slightly smaller noses that she could make, she could make good too. But also, she, she had a, a mother who was the antithesis of a stage mother, who kept telling her, Barbie, you can't do it. You're not pretty enough. You're not gonna make it. And, and a lot of people have, have said that Barbara's mother did that because she was uncaring. I think she was, I think she was very caring. I think she didn't want her daughter to be hurt. And that's, that's a, one of the points in my book that I take is different from, from others, other takes on it. Barbara, Barbara's father had also died 
when she was barely one year old. And she idolized him. And, she, I, and she, I believe that she has spent her life, if you look at like, you know, so many of her later movies, you see that, the, the, the need to prove herself to Papa. Um, and uh, I think she, it was also an attempt to, I'm gonna show them and I'm gonna make my father proud of me, even though he wasn't around. So that's the young woman that I profile in that book. And so now I'm really glad I told that story. My editor had, you know, had said, you know, do Barbara Streisand, and I said, oh, you know, what, what, it had been 36,000 books about her, what? So, having found that story about her, now I'm, I'm, I'm so glad I went on that journey. Um, um, but I, and I also got to do this, too, because he, <laughs> he had promised. So, I'd love to talk to you about, about this, or about Barbara, about anything else, any questions or ideas or thoughts you have, and we can uh, just talk, yeah, right here. I'd like to ask a question. I'm really fascinated by you. Uh -huh. um, how did you become involved in writing about these celebrities, and how did you make contact with them? What's your background? Well, you know, my background was I was a freelance writer who loved movies. And I just, from the time I was very, very young, I just started writing for a lot of magazines and um, um, Architectural Digest. I mean, anybody who, you know, where I could write a story, they, have a, they had an annual Hollywood issue, and I was always in that. Um, and then I just began to get published, and, and um, I, I just always, I, not, I don't, it's not enough probably to say that I loved the movies, because I do, but I also love this, this idea of, um, like I'm just depicting in this book, like I talked with I just about Streisand, is I like the business behind the scenes. Like, how did they get to that place? What was really going on? What was the, you know, what were the social and cultural factors that were going on? What were the... How did they sell the, the you know, because entertainment today, we have this whole culture of celebrity that is just out of control now. And, but that came from somewhere. You know, we see the roots of it here in Tinseltown. You see it, you know, in 1922, Hollywood wasn't all that different from here. It's just a little bit smaller. So it was, it was, it was that, I think, and, it, and, and I, then, then I was fortunate because I came up with some ideas that, that people wanted to, you know, give me books, tell, let me write books about, so. Where did, you, where did you first begin writing? In New York, my, or? In New York yeah, yeah. But, but, but my first book was on Hollywood. It was on, on William Haynes, who was a uh, film star in the 1930s and 1920s. Um, and, then, um, and then I did, um, I was very fortunate because um, the director, John Schlesinger, had read that book. And he, he actually, oh, he kind of lifted me up a little bit out of, out of um, you know, gave me some more notoriety. And he called me and he had a stroke, and he wanted to write his memoir. And he was living in Palm Springs, and he said, would you come out and help me tell this memoir? Because I can't do it anymore on my own. And in the course of our working together, he became more and more um, incapacitated. So it, it ended up being a biography of him, but with his cooperation. Um, and that was really, that was really the, the, the moment that kind of brought me to the, you know, connected to me to a lot of people in Los Angeles. Thank you. Yeah, I'm back here. Have you ever done screenwriting? I thank you for that question because <laughs> because I am now actually Tinseltown is we will have an announcement very soon it's being optioned and um, I'm with a with a, with another screenwriter I will be um, writing the screenplay so um, it's really exciting and um, my book on Catherine Hepburn has also been optioned and even though I'm not writing the screenplay in that I'm I am in cons um, consultation with it. Who are your students or you teach, and what do you want them to learn from your courses? Why take your course? 
What a great question, because, um, yeah, because teaching is really important to me. And um, my students, I teach mostly like popular culture, and I teach um, um, American and social histories. And like my last course, I'm, I'm not on, I'm not teaching this semester, but you know, it's, it's um, my last course was on American um, social movements as seen through film. So we looked at the labor's movement, the, um, the women's movement, looking at films from the silent era on. So it's, I guess what I would want my students to take away from that is an appreciation that things didn't start today or last week. I mean, sometimes young people don't realize that we've already fought all their battles. If they would just pay attention, you know? We've we kind of been there, we know. And, and, um, and the answers to so many of our, the questions that face us today can be found in the past. Because, you know, again, with writing Tinseltown, you know, the, the, the forces that were at work, I mean, it's, just, it was, it's the same thing, you know, the, um, uh, the, the criticism of Hollywood, about Hollywood values, we still hear that. Um, um, the, the, you know, the issue of censorship, the issues, issues of, um, you know, how, how, does, how does one sell, the, the dividing line between personal and private lives. So, you know, it's, it's all happened before, and I try to point that out with my students. I, we tr always try to use an example from the past, and I try to give an example today that helps them understand. Yeah? Segway off of that question, in your, in your academic life, right. have you found that Hollywood is an accurate or honest reflection of social history? Not looking at individual films, but overall, do you think it's a, it's a, it's a good source? doing history or, or does it tell its own story? Yeah, well, I think a little of both. I mean, I think, I think when we look at a film from, um, say, you know, the 1940s, about World War II, say, for example, we're seeing not only um, the, the film being, being um, made, but it's, it's also very immediate. So you know that the time, there, there was a certain, there was a certain, um, uh, uh, sensibility that went into making that film that informed that film. Now, say that you know, then there are films about World War II that are made in the 70s. Well, in some ways, then that becomes more of a comment on the 70s and the way the 70s were looking at the issues of World War II. And that's the that's the kind of things that we we look at when we look at those kind of films. We say, well, you know, what can this tell us not only about the subject matter, but what about the people who were making it and when were they making it? Um, and and so it becomes, you know. It, Films, like anything else, are artifacts. They're historical, historical artifacts. And so you look at both the content, but you also looked at, look at how they were viewed and how they were, um, the reasons that they were made. And, and that tells you something about the, the bigger culture at large, as, as not just the, the film itself. Yeah. yeah. Um, how, how did it go doing research for this book? Were you able, I, I assume everyone had passed away. Yes. So there were no. So where did I you loved that. <laughs> I didn't have to call anybody and beg for an interview. <laughs> so how did you get most of your research done? What did you? Well, it was, um, and one of the reasons that I, I can make the claim that I think I've solved the murder is that um, no one who else, and there have been several other books about this particular case, and I come to a very different conclusion. Um, and I, I think it's because I, I, I found records that nobody else kind of thought to look for. I'm not really sure why, but the, you know, the FBI had just come into operation at this time. And though they didn't investigate this case itself, they investigated a lot of the people around it. And so I was able to 
you know, get clues and, and oh, look, well, look what so-and-so was doing then, and I was able to put two and two together. Um, so it was that, it was really being, uh, casting a net as wide as possible, going to the National Archives and going through, you know, old, old records from the 1920s. Um, and the other good thing now is that so many newspapers have been digitized and they're online. So you can search by word for, you know, you know so many newspapers all across the country and, and that's something that previous researchers didn't have. So if there was a little article about somebody that they were arrested for this or that or something, and, but it was in you know, five years before this, I was able to find that and then I was able to um, put that into the mix, into the formula. But why, why were you interested in this subject? Um, because I, I, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to really, it's also something that's been fascinating me since I was a kid. I'm not really sure why, but when I remember being a kid, do anybody remember the book Hollywood Babylon? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, um, when I was a kid, I got that book. It was like all of the scandals. I mean, my, my mother didn't want me to look at it because it <laughs> naked pictures in it. And, uh, um, but it was, it was the, all the scandals. And this one was featured pretty big. And, and I thought, gosh, all this time and nobody's ever found out who did it. So I think that was what I mean. It's always been in the back of my head, and uh, um, and because I wanted to do something really different from Hepper and Taylor Streisand. So this so this was kind of the the result. Yeah. Was the uh, lease structure at that time the same as it is now? I mean, was there like the Beverly Hills Police Department and the Police Department Hollywood? Yes, it was. Um, I'm not sure about Beverly Hills, but it was. There were three actually. There was there was the county, um, uh, the county uh, sheriff's department, and then there was the Los Angeles City Police, and then there was the district attorney. So there were three different um, um, groups investigating, and they were often in conflict with each other and trying to one up each other. So I go into that in the book. And Ed King, the detective that I. Um, pointed out here, he was kind of the liaison between all of them. He was with the LA um, Police Department, but he the, the, he was working for the District Attorney. So yeah, so there was. Um, I actually think the police did a pretty good job investigating this case. And if and if the studio employees Charles Aiton hadn't taken out of those papers out of Taylor's house, I think they would have been able to solve this crime because the police were pretty thorough. I've worked with the um, Ed King's granddaughter, who has a lot of his papers. That was something else I was able to find. And uh, you know, I think, um, it, though it was a very complicated structure, as you point out, I think they did a pretty good job. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that someone could go in and remove so much material from the murder scene yeah. with no consequences. Right. I think that's because there was a brief time where it was not seen as a crime scene. When they first found the body, there was no, there was no, there was no blood. There was, he was laying there, it looked completely disheveled. And the first instinct was he had a heart attack and dropped dead. So they didn't call the cops right away. They called the studio. The studio came in, immediately said, whether it's accident or not, we don't want anybody finding this stuff. So they started rampaging through the house. Then they turned the body over. They found the, the bullet hole and the, the cops declared it a crime scene, but by that the time the studio had already made off with all the papers. And they had destroyed them, I gather. Yeah, I would love to find those papers. I mean, I, it's, um, I can't imagine, somebody asked me too, they said, do you think they might still be somewhere? I said, Adolf Zucker was far too sharp. He would not have left those around. I'm sure he fed them personally into the fire, you know? <laughs> yeah. How long did it take you to research this whole thing? And at what point in your research did you conclude it was 
culprit. Yeah, it was. It, you know, I would do it kind of at night sometimes when I when I was writing on Taylor or Streisand. I'd say, oh, okay, I can't do any more divas. I've got to like you know do something else. And I would I would work on on this. So it's been, it was several years. But then for for two solid years, maybe two and a half years solid on it. And and I can I, I can't tell you exactly when I when I realized who did it because then I'd give it away. But I can tell you that I found a newspaper article through that digitized process that I never expected to find. And it was from, not from this period at all, but it related to one of the characters who was up on the screen. And, and that moment when I read that, that article, I said, that's it. That's, that's what gave me, you know, would it stand up in a court of law after 92 years? I don't know. It's a lot of circumstantial evidence, but that's really all you can hope for this late in the game. The physical ev evidence is all gone. But sometimes when you have so much circumstantial evidence, it kind of becomes compelling. But it was that moment, and I, I remember it because I sat there and I kind of sat back in my chair and I said, that's got to be it. So, yeah. Is your future going to be in whodunits kind of? I would love that. Um, <laughs> But actually, my next book is about um, uh, the Roosevelt family. So I'm doing a whole nother, uh, going to a whole nother route. So, um, but maybe if, um, if Tinseltown as the TV series takes off, then um, maybe I will be, you know? So, yeah, right. I have a question regarding the, the gunshot. Yeah. And the fact that there was not a ton of blood around. Right, right. I mean, why was that? Because of the way it entered the body? Yeah, I guess so, because, and he was, he was laying, you know, it came, it, he uh -huh. shot him here. It went up through up, up his left side, and then it came up and it lodged itself right here. So it went up diagonally. Right, didn't come out. He was lodged, yeah. And he was laying on the, on his back. So the blood, any blood there was, was underneath the body. So you are competing with O'Reilly, who killed. That's right, exactly. Right. That's right, exactly. And you know, this is this has been one of those. Uh, those old chestnuts, you know, I mean, like who who did this thing? And it's been it's been around for so long that uh, some people don't want it to be solved. You know, they they keep well, he can't be right. You know, but, yeah. have you since you published the book, have people either come out attacking or supporting you? Um, well, well, technically, it's it, this is its first day of publication, oh. and it's actually number one on Amazon <laughs> in terms of movie books. So it's number one today on Amazon in terms of movie books. Today is its actual official publication. There are some people already, yes, because we sent it to some of the, there's a whole website called Taylorology, and these are people who really spend their time working on this case. And the, most of them on that site have been very supportive, but a few of them, they don't, they don't, they, they want to be the one to solve it, so they have not been, uh, yeah. Uh, I want to mention that it's been reviewed in the LA Times. Yes. Book section. Uh, yes. Sunday. On Sunday. Very favorably. Yes, it was very favorable. I was very grateful for that. Thank you for pointing that out. Yes, yes. And that's what I think got everybody calling us about it. So that was great. Okay, I think we're going to wrap it up unless you have one last question. So I want to thank you. Thank, thank you so much for coming.